the religious leaders were angry and confused because they said that only God had the ability to forgive sins. And so Jesus then went ahead and healed the man to prove that he could forgive sins. And that's where we pick up here in verse 13. So starting in verse 13, it says, He, that's Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's the word of the Lord this morning for us. Um, I think this passage is one that kind of gets overlooked when we read Mark, or at least it's one that I probably would have overlooked. Uh, we already studied Jesus calling some disciples, so that part doesn't really seem to be that special. And he doesn't really do any miracles in the story. So we're kind of in this process of Jesus doing all these incredible things, and then we hit this passage, and I, at least I would have kind of just glazed over it. But I think there's something really important here for us today. So hopefully you guys can catch that with me. We know that Jesus has been traveling around Galilee. He's been making a name for himself as a rabbi with this new, fresh teaching that the kingdom is at hand, as well as amazing people with his miraculous ability to heal the sick and cast out unclean spirits. So Jesus wraps up his tour of Galilee, and like I said, he's become so popular, he can't even go into the towns and teach at the synagogues anymore. He has to find a deserted place outside of the town where all of the crowds can come to see him so that he could heal them and do the things that he was doing. And if you remember back to the first story uh, in Mark of Jesus calling the fishermen as his disciples, that was in Mark 1, Sam talked about the status of a rabbi in the culture of the time. Rabbis were a big deal. They were the people that you went to see when they came into town. They were the popular teachers. And by this time, Jesus was kind of beginning to acquire this name for himself as a rabbi. People were surprised at his teaching when he rolled into town. He was healing the injured. He was healing the diseased and casting out unclean spirits. So he had a pretty incredible reputation at this point. Now, there were definitely some questions from people about who he chose as his disciples, why he chose fishermen instead of gifted scholars. But for the most part, he was doing what he was supposed to do, just with some added miracles. And then starting with our passage last week, Jesus starts to really change expectations and turn those expectations on their head. And he starts to anger the religious leaders, starting with his claims that he can forgive sin, which is something that was supposed to be only in God's hands, and then continuing with his actions in our passage today. What I want to do is I want to focus for a little while on who this person is that Jesus calls to be his disciple, who Levi is, and then talk about the interaction that they have when he's at Levi's house. 
So Jesus goes out beside the Sea of Galilee. He's walking along the shore, teaching the crowd that is following him. And he comes to this crossroad where Levi's tax booth is set up. Now, Levi is a tax collector. He is a publican. He's a person who works for Rome and collects taxes. He's probably there collecting taxes on the fi- what the fishermen bring in. He's there collecting taxes on the people who come you know, by boat to Capernaum. He's there collecting taxes from the people who pass by on the road. And he sees Levi, and he tells Levi to follow him. So Levi gets up and does. Like I said, on the, sup- on the surface of it, it's not a super compelling story, but it becomes pretty interesting when we look at who Levi is. Because, like I said, Levi is a tax collector. Now, this is, just as a note, this is the same Levi that is also called Matthew, and later goes on to write one of the Gospels. And for us, when we hear tax collector, I mean, none of us like to pay taxes, but tax collector isn't really a a boogeyman term. But for those people, the tax collector was a horrible person. Levi was a Jew who was working for the Roman oppressors, collecting taxes from them. Don't forget the context of the time that we've been talking about here, going through Advent and going through Mark. The Romans have conquered Israel, and they are not kind masters. They've instituted a tax on the Jewish people on basically everything that they do that is slowly draining the life out of these Jewish people. In many ways, I think the Jewish situation can be compared to early American days. You know, we get all fired up about no taxation without representation and our revolution and all those things. Or if you prefer, it could be compared to the story of Robin Hood. And Levi here is the sheriff of Nottingham. He is the one collecting the taxes. Simply put, for the Jews, Levi was a traitor. Levi is a Jew who decided to betray his people and work for the Roman masters, collecting taxes from his own countrymen. And it was pretty standard in those times. The way that the Romans had set up the tax structure was the tax collectors were expected to send the tax portion to the Romans, but they were allowed to collect whatever amount of taxes they wanted. So... Levi had the Roman backing to basically collect whatever money he wanted to from the Jews. So you can probably guess that these guys ended up pretty wealthy. They collected extra taxes. They had the Roman backing of guards and the masters. And that's why they got into this business. Levi betrayed his people for money. There's a reason later in the story that the Pharisees refer to Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners because there wasn't really any distinction between the two for the Jews. The tax collectors were sinners. This makes, Je- this makes Levi the least likely person possible for Jesus to call as his disciple. Remember, the disciples of a rabbi were the elite students of the nation. Every child went to school to memorize large portions of scripture and to learn the law. And then they tried to become the disciple of a rabbi, and only the elite students were chosen. But Jesus ignored all that, and he walked around calling poor fishermen, calling successful fishermen, and now calling a traitorous tax collector as his disciple. 
I think it's easy for us to look back on these guys and think that Jesus saw something special in them, and that's why he called them. We know, for example, Matthew, Levi here, goes on to write one of the Gospels. But I don't think it was because he was anything special. I don't think it was because Jesus saw something special in him and decided to call him. I think that's actually why he calls Levi, why he picks the worst possible person. There's a pretty common theme in our cultural stories, in our fairy tales, that a hero starts as a down-and-out person, uh, the person least likely to amount to anything. We have you know, Aladdin, who is the lovable beggar who steals food so he can live, and he r- rises to become the hero. We have Han Solo. He's the smuggler who gets his chance to rescue a princess and becomes a hero. Or we have somebody like Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings, a normal hobbit who finds himself inheriting a ring and has to go and destroy it to save everybody. All these stories have a character starting in obscurity and getting their chance, rising to become a hero. That isn't Levi's story. He didn't have hard circumstances that forced him to you know, commit minor crimes to keep himself alive. He was just waiting for his chance to become a hero. He was just an awful person. He was a traitor. The concept of a traitor is something that I think causes all of us to shudder, to feel revulsion. You know, we think of Benedict Arnold or somebody like that, and we just, we don't like them. It's ingrained in us. Levi chose to betray his people in order to make money. These are the villains in these stories. They're not the heroes. I compared him to the sheriff of Nottingham from the Robin Hood story. He was the villain, and Levi also was that kind of a person. He wasn't just waiting for his chance to show his inner hero and become some great person. He had already showed his inner person, and it was awful. Jesus didn't see something special in Levi and go and pick him, and then Levi had his chance and became something amazing. Jesus picked him because he was a sinner, because he was a nobody. And Jesus then used him, the Holy Spirit used him to do something amazing. That's how God works. The Holy Spirit uses these men, used these men in Scripture to do something amazing. It wasn't that they were amazing. There's definitely something beneficial in stories like those ones that I was talking about where these heroes rise up and do amazing things. But in reality, in the biblical stories, it's different. The characters in those stories were not those kind of people. Jacob was a liar and a cheater. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Peter was a coward. Paul was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. And Levi was a traitor. And then... Mark moves on here in this story to tell us why Jesus picked Levi. So we get to this scene where Jesus has now called Levi. Jesus has, Levi got up, he followed Jesus, he left his tax booth, and then he invites Jesus back to his place. So they go, and Levi invites a bunch of his friends, a bunch of his sinner and tax collector friends, to go share a meal with Jesus. Now the scribes of the Pharisees, one of the main political and religious groups of the time, begin to question Jesus' disciples about why this is going on. Because the Pharisees taught that the Mosaic laws about purity and keeping clean 
would not allow a Jew to dine with sinners because that would make them unclean. The sinners and tax collector was kind of a status term that showed that these people, they didn't properly obey Mosaic law, and so they were to be kept away from. Jesus didn't follow that. It's a big deal that Jesus was hanging out with these people, that Jesus was eating a meal with them. Not only did Jesus call this traitorous tax collector to be his disciple, now he's hanging out and eating a meal with a whole crowd of his friends. So Jesus hears about these questions that the scribes are asking his disciples, and he responds in verse 17. It says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a powerful statement, and it's what I want to focus on this morning. It's what I want us to get from this. Especially, this is especially powerful from someone who just got done claiming that he could forgive sins. The Jewish religion, and the Pharisees especially, had changed over the centuries into a religion that was about becoming righteous. It was about restoring right standing with God. Their religion revolved around sacrifice and purity, all for the purpose of restoring their right standing with God. For a very long time, throughout their entire history, the Jews had existed in this cycle of national sin and punishment, repentance, restoration, and then all over again. They just continued in this cycle. And then finally, God destroyed their nation as punishment. He just utterly destroyed them. And it really only been within the last few centuries that the Jews were allowed to come back and rebuild their nation. And now, they're again on the threshold of potential destruction as the Roman Empire has taken over and is continuing to grind them down into the dust. All this combined to make the Jews extremely worried about righteousness. They held fast to the letter of the law as taught by their religious leaders because they wanted to be righteous so that they would not be punished again, so that the Messiah would come and save them and make them a great nation again. The Pharisees were popular and powerful because they taught the law in specifics. They broke down the law into a list of rules They said, do this and don't do that. Wear this, don't wear that. Eat this, don't eat that. On this day, you can only walk this far. They broke it down into easy-to-follow steps. They made it an exact science. So the Jews, who were determined to be righteous, followed the Pharisees because it was broken down. It was easy for them to understand. And they expected, because of their righteousness, that God would bless them. Then Jesus walks on the scene. Like we said, he's a rabbi who chooses his disciples in a very odd way. He's a teacher with a fresh teaching of scripture, a healer who's gathering massive crowds, and now a man who claims to be the Messiah who can forgive sins. He's a man who would rather spend time with sinners and tax collectors than the religious elite. This man chooses a traitor as his disciple and then explains his reasoning, saying he came for sinners, not the righteous. Whether or not they understood it, this is a huge blow to the Pharisees and their teaching. 
the one they've been waiting for, their Messiah, just told them he didn't come to call them. He came for sinners. He came for people like Levi. I can't overemphasize how important this is. Jesus came for sinners, not the righteous. We need to be clear what that means. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He did not come for people who think they are righteous. Scripture is abundantly clear that no one is actually righteous. Psalm 14, we have King David in verses 2 and 3 say, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Then in Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. There's not a single person who has ever lived who can claim that they didn't sin, who can claim that they were righteous, except for Jesus. None of us is righteous. So Jesus is not telling the Pharisees that they're righteous and so they don't need him. He's making a distinct statement that those who count themselves as righteous are not. Everyone needs salvation from the traitorous tax collector to the hypocritical Pharisee. But the Pharisees and the Jewish people had spent so much of their time creating this us and them mentality. We're righteous. They're not. We're God's chosen people. They are not. The Messiah will come to save us, not them. Jesus firmly and without hesitation steps across the line and joins the them category, the sinners, stating that they are who he came for. We need to clearly see Jesus' heart in this passage. Jesus came to save sinners, so he spent time with them. He hung out with them. He ate meals with them, and he called them to follow him. He called them as his disciples. There was no one whose sin was too great for Jesus. Levi proves that. This tells us that our sin is not too great for Jesus either. I love what Sam was talking about, about the long-suffering of Christ, and that his deepest sins were actually found within him after he accepted Jesus as his Savior. Our sin is not too great for Jesus. If you struggle with the weight of your sin— I want you to hear that. Jesus walked up to probably the worst man in Capernaum and called him as his disciple. Our sin is not too great for Jesus. In the previous section of Mark, Jesus forgave all of a man's sins with a word, and the guy didn't even ask for it. Jesus is the only one who lived a righteous life. He suffered the punishment for our sin, and he broke the hold of sin and death over us. He came to save sinners, and he succeeded. He accomplished what he came to accomplish. He has saved sinners. He is saving sinners, and he will save sinners, including us. See, the Pharisees thought that through their adherence to the Mosaic law and the sacrificial system, they could attain righteousness. They could attain right standing with God. They were wrong. Somehow they missed it. In Psalm 51, King David told them clearly that their adherence to the sacrificial system for their own gain was never going to be enough. In verse 16, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God doesn't want empty sacrifice. 
Church, if we don't struggle with the weight of our sin, I hope that this message is a caution for us. Jesus came for sinners, not those who don't think they need him. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy acknowledged the heavy weight of his own sin when he was referring to Jesus' words here. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. At this point in Paul's life, if you look at his actions, he's pretty clearly not the foremost sinner, if you're judging it by actions. He's dedicated his entire life to spreading the gospel and planting churches. He's full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He's doing incredible things for God. He's going around planting churches and doing miracles. But despite all that, his sin weighs heavy on him. He sees the depth of his own sin and depravity, and he considers himself the foremost sinner. King David told us that what God wants is a broken and contrite heart. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, and that's what a, bro a broken and contrite heart is, a repentant one. A person who sees the depth and weight of their sin and knows they need a savior. You guys could turn to Luke 18 with me. Jesus tells a story that addresses this. Starting in verse 9, he tells this story. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus once again contrasts a Pharisee and a tax collector here. The Pharisee sees himself as righteous. He looks at other people as sinners, and he makes a distinction between the two. He's relieved he's not like the tax collector. On the other hand, the tax collector sees the weight of his own sin and simply asks God for mercy. These are the people that Jesus came to save. Those who see the weight of their own sin and humble themselves before God and ask him for mercy. Every single one of us needs that kind of heart. We must be broken and contrite over our sin. We must cry out to God for mercy. The beautiful thing is he responds. That tax collector walked away justified because he cried out to God for mercy. And that's how Jesus saves sinners. Not through their own acts of righteousness. We don't do anything special to earn our salvation. Jesus saves us while we are still in our sin. Levi didn't have some sudden change of heart that morning where he woke up and decided to be a better person and then saw Jesus walking by and was like, ooh, here's my chance. Jesus walked up to him in the middle of his sin and called him and said, follow me. He went down into 
the worst of Levi's sin and rescued him. All Levi had to do was stand up and follow. We do the same through our faith in Jesus as our Savior. In Romans 4, Paul uses the example of how Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness to show Jesus' work on our behalf. He says, starting in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, speaking of Abraham. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf is counted to us as righteousness when we place our faith in him as the Lord and Savior. It's not a righteousness that we have earned or that we gain for ourselves. His righteousness is counted to us. We're not different than other people or somehow special because of who or what we are. In fact, it's easy for me to stand up here and tell you about what a horrible sinner Levi was because he betrayed his people for selfish gain. But the painful reality is I'm not any different. We're not any different. I think every single one of us is guilty of betraying people for our own selfish gain. What's worse, every single one of us is guilty of betraying our created purpose to worship and glorify God for our own selfish gain. We are all a traitor like Levi was. The only thing that makes us different, the only thing that separates us from everyone else in the world is the divine love of Jesus Christ and his mercy to save us. He walked up to each one of us who are saved, reached out to us, and said, come and follow me. That's amazing. Each one of us that believes in Christ as our Savior can stand here today and say that just like that paralyzed man lowered down through the roof, Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sins and made us clean. And that is the only difference between us and everybody else. Finally, and we'll end with this. I think that we as Christians need to see that this is the call that Jesus wants us to emulate. Jesus came to save sinners, and he gave us, his church, the message to spread to those sinners. We have to model ourselves after Jesus in this way. He hung out with them. He ate meals with them. He spent time in their houses. If we have a proper view of ourselves as sinners saved by grace, then we won't see ourselves as better than anyone else like the Pharisees did. We won't be able to sit here and condemn Levi for his sin or condemn anyone else for their sin because we know the weight of our own sin. We will be eternally grateful for Jesus saving us and want other sinners to experience that grace. We have to realize that we must go and spend time with those people. The Pharisees tried to draw a line in the sand with Jesus, calling him to come over and be on their side of the line, to join them away from the sinners, to join the righteous. And Jesus flat out told them he had come to save sinners, and he went to be with those sinners. We have to cross that line in the sand with Jesus and go to the sinners. Now, don't walk away from here this morning telling yourself that I just gave you permission to not be in Christian community. I'm not telling you that you aren't supposed to spend time with Christians. Jesus spent time with his disciples all the time. He took them with him wherever he went. He took his gospel community right alongside of him when he went into Levi's house. 
he called Levi as his disciples, as his disciple. And then he went with Levi to his house, ate a meal with Levi and all his friends. Jesus wasn't worried about making sure that these people that he was hanging out with were following some set of rules or laws that he wanted them to follow before he would spend time with them. He came to save sinners, so he went to them. Our call is to lead people to Jesus, people that need him. Sinners, just like we are. We can't do that if we don't spend time with them. That's all there is to it. Jesus was a disciple maker who called sinners as disciples. And we are those disciples tasked to go find more disciples. That's all there is to it, yeah. Jesus, I pray that we as the church would humble ourselves that we could step away from our self-righteousness, that we could humble ourselves and see that we need you. Jesus, I pray that we would not be caught up in our own righteousness, but that we would be caught up in your righteousness. Jesus, thank you that you came and called us out of our sin that you saw our great need and you came and said, follow me. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would work through us to cause that same heart in ourselves, that we would see those around us in desperate need of a savior and that we would go to them and give them the good news that the savior has come. Jesus, we thank you. Amen.
All right, you guys can be stand, stay standing as we uh, as I read a benediction. Let me run through a couple announcements real quick. Um, be here next week as we start our vision series. We're going to be looking at what the church is and what we are called to do. And it's going to be a good opportunity for us, I think, as a church to refocus ourselves, to re-look at our vision and see what we are supposed to be. Um, we have... Not a lot else coming up. Uh, there's the next women's prayer meeting. I heard the last one went amazing. I wasn't there because I'm not a woman, but <laughs> I heard that it was amazing. Um, the next one is coming up Monday, January 22nd. Uh, that's going to be from 7 to 9 at Mike and Michelle Peugeot's house. So be there. Um, yeah, otherwise, we are excited to see you guys in GCs throughout the week. Um, we've got a bunch of different slides and stuff that show up, so you can Pay attention to those. If you aren't in a GC and you want to get connected, talk to me. Talk to one of the other elders. Uh, we, c we would love to get you connected to a GC. Um, gospel community. I keep saying GC. You may not know what that means. Uh, all right. So join with me and as I read this benediction. And I hope that we can take this to heart and we can have this be our, our cry throughout the week. This is the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repu reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Church, we hope that all of us can go out this week and preach the word to those who need it, that we can be evangelists, that we can be the gospel to those who need it, and that we can, at the end of our lives, receive the crown of righteousness. We are excited to go throughout this week to see you guys in gospel communities, to spend time in community with you. Um, yeah, so go and have an amazing week.